0: Let's start, as we sometimes do, with a bit of
1: Shakespeare.
0: If you don't recognize that scene and by the way, it's Mistress Ford and Falstaff from The Merry Wives of Windsor, it's likely because you're not one of the millions of people in the world who speak Swahili. While spoken in many places, Swahili is most tied to one particular part of the African continent, the one we'll be talking about in this episode. This episode is about Shakespeare and East Africa. (music) The Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. If you aren't from East Africa, you may have never really considered the outsized role of our favorite English playwright on the region's politics, history, and literary culture. In this episode, we speak with two people who are profoundly interested in the subject on a deeply personal level. These two literary scholars both grew up in Kenya, but at different times and under completely different circumstances. Edward Wilson Lee, the son of white wildlife conservationists, spent his childhood in Kenya. Today, he teaches Shakespeare at the University of Cambridge in England. Over the past few years, he has spent extended periods back in Kenya as well as in Tanzania, Uganda, Ethiopia, and South Sudan, researching his book, Shakespeare in Swahililand. Edward is joined by one of his great literary heroes, the renowned Kenyan playwright, novelist, dissident, and social activist, Gugi Wathyam. Gugi also grew up in Kenya, when it was still a British colony. Gugi is now a distinguished professor of comparative literature at the University of California, Irvine. His most recent work is the memoir, Birth of a Dreamweaver. Before we start, two pieces of context. In this conversation, you'll hear references to Henry Morton Stanley and David Livingston. They were both 19th century explorers in Africa. You'll also hear the language of Swahili referred to interchangeably by both of its names, Swahili and Kiswahili. We call this podcast the language that I have lived in. Googie and Edward are interviewed by Barbara Bogey.
2: Edward, if we could, let's begin with basics, just defining our terms. What are we talking about when we talk about Swahililand?
3: So this was a, a term that I, I'm i not the first to use, but it's not a terribly commonly used to, term. But it was a way of capturing a particular group of East African countries to which Swahili was spoken essentially as the British administrative language during colonial times. So the colonizers landed first, of course, on the co- in the coastal regions where Swahili is spoken and they learned Swahili um, and they weren't going to learn, they, they were damned if they're going to learn another language. So as they moved inland, they started to force everyone else to speak Swahili as well.
1: Swahili is basically a Bantu language developed in the coast of East Africa, Mozambique, Kenya, Mombasa, Malindi, Sainsbury's, okay but very much influenced also by Muslim culture and Arabic. It's a very rich language. And now Kiswahili is a national and official language in Kenya. It has got official status in Uganda. In Tanzania, it's both a national and official language. It's spoken in Mozambique. In the Congo, it is the fourth largest language you know in a country plus if you go to many universities all over the world you know from china to europe to america and so on you know it is in one african language which is taught it's like to be kiswahili
2: Okay, thanks for that grounding. And, and now to Shakespeare in Swahili land. When and how did Shakespeare first arrive in what we're calling Swahili land? And, and there's a disputed, possibly forged story about a performance of Hamlet on board ship in 1608, correct?
3: Yeah. So the date of his arrival depends on who you believe. There's this fantastic story uh, in which the third voyage of the East India Company in 1607-9, to two of the ships get slightly lost. Um, and as they're meandering down the coast of West Africa and then up the coast of, of East Africa, there's a, a, a report here which says that the sailors acted the hamlet off the coast of Sierra Leone in, in, in 1607. And then in 1608, um, acted Richard II off Northwest of Madagascar. And uh, I'm telling the story kind of tentatively because the report comes from a a log from the East India Company that was reported in the early 19th century uh, and has subsequently been lost. And some people believe that this was actually a forgery of the notorious Victorian forger John Payne Collier, uh, who wanted to create this extraordinary discovery of Shakespeare being performed off the coast of Africa. And if uh, these reports were true, it would mean not only was Shakespeare being performed off East Africa in Shakespeare's lifetime, but that the first recorded performance of Hamlet was not um, in Southwark or in Shoreditch, but instead off the coast of Sierra Leone and what's more was being performed for Portuguese speaking Sierra Leonean African. So it kind of shakes up the history of what we understand about Shakespeare and, and you know who were the first uh, witnesses of Shakespeare and who were the first experiences of Shakespeare if it's true.
2: If it's true and that's the important uh, phrase here, right? Yep. And and, yep. and again, if it's true, if it happened at all and it's highly likely that it did not uh but but it is mind blowing and and Googie, i know you told our producer that this was for you the most fascinating story in the book
1: oh yes that one and also the you know in the, in the tempest shakespeare's tempest there's the isle caliban's island i've always thought it was somewhere in caribbean area and then i read wilsons book and i find he talks about zanzibar uh, being the that particular island, and I've been to Zanzibar, and really, I mean, it's a magical island. Literally, even today, it's still magical in some cases. So you're so saying when,
2: you're a true believer in, in Yeah, I can, well, it's a
1: very, very fascinating. He makes it very compelling, and if you go to Zanzibar, even today. You know, when Caliban is talking about, you know, how the magic of the island, the sounds he hears, you know, that whole thing could be actually a description of Zanzibar even today.
2: Oh, that's so enticing. But again, odds might be against this, any of this being true, right? And, and as I said, the operative phrase is if it happened. But really, the question for you, Edward, is if all this probably or likely didn't happen, why is it useful for us to be talking about it?
3: Well, so um, I think that story is illustrative because it's equally interesting if it didn't happen because it's representative of a particular urge that 19th century Romantic and Victorian British culture felt to find Shakespeare in the quote-unquote dark continent. There was almost this kind of symbiotic relationship where Shakespeare's universality couldn't really prove itself unless he showed himself to, to also be capable of existing in this uh, in this faraway place. And this becomes part of a tradition when Captains Sir Richard Francis Burton and John Hanning Speak go off on their cartographic expedition um, to try and establish the source of the Nile. And they take with them the complete works of Shakespeare and spend the time reading the complete works of Shakespeare. Um, and Burton even uses uh, Shakespearean insult to have a go at speak when speak has the unforgivable luck to have found the, NAR, the source of the Nile by himself when Burton wasn't there. He, you know, pulls a quote from The Two Gentlemen of Verona and says that, uh, speak, uh, as the damsel Lucetta says in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, like a woman's reason, I think it's so because I think it's so. So, uh, and, and this begins a tradition where pretty much everyone who comes to East Africa from England in the 19th century talks about how they brought with them as they're only reading the complete works of Shakespeare. So the idea that this story uh, is trying to put across in the early 19th century of Shakespeare um, being first performed off the coast of Sierra Leone is, I think, drawn from a deep Victorian fascination of um, couplings between what they think of this kind of amulet of British culture and this dark continent, which uh, fascinates and horrifies them in, in equal parts.
2: And by amulet, do you mean that in the sense of uh, Shakespeare, say, is a signifier of civilization?
3: Yeah. So I think a number of these bizarre Shakespeare on safari um, stories, Henry Morton Stanley is, is one of the great Shakespeare on safari storytellers. Uh, and one of the paradigmatic stories he tells is one in which you know he's in the Congo and a tribe confronts him because they think he's making black magic by writing. And Morton Stanley is Henry Morton Stanley is pretending that you know these people have never seen writing, uh, whereas actually Arabic traders had been you know bringing written Qurans into this area for ages. And uh, this tribe confronts him and says that uh, they're going to have to. He has to burn his writing. Um, and he can't burn his expeditionary notebook that he's been writing in, but the only other thing he has with him is this volume of the complete works of Shakespeare, and he has this long and melodramatic scene in his book in which he talks about how shakespeare has long been his genial companion and the only thing he has with him to kind of connects him to civilization and then shakespeare is cast into the flames and shakespeare plays the part of christ here going into the flames to sate the devils but you know innocent himself <laughs> and the wonderful sting in this story is actually we can compare stanley's version in his book with the expeditionary diaries and it's a complete fabrication he's just made this up um, and he's, but he's made it up because it's something that the Victorian audience need in order to prop up the idea of Shakespeare's immortality, for there to be these barbaric readers who don't understand him.
2: Ooh, you're laughing. You're laughing at that, Henry Morton. Statue. No, no,
1: I'm laughing because, uh, oh yeah, that's true. Shakespeare generally was used uh, not as really as a playwright, more as a symbol of light in a dark continent. Shakespeare the great writer in a continent where there are no writers. So the whole idea of light and darkness, uh, Shakespeare would represent obviously the highest expression of of light as opposed to uh, darkness
2: a very shakespearean um, yeah, yeah, yeah comparison um, yeah. and 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 you had english travelers and explorers going back uh, and forth to africa and coming back with these remarkable tales as you say some of which include shakespeare and you write that this kind of reached its peak in the boys adventure novels by h Ryder, haggard oh, yeah and you and and <laughs> edward you call him the the great fountainhead of the african adventure story what were what, what were his
1: books this like racist through <laughs> yeah. with a capital through. r yeah. Yeah. yeah you know no Wright, Wright yeah. haggard is
3: providing victorian england with this kind of pure racist fantasy that they have that essentially somewhere in africa there is a kind of little british kingdom that every english person can go out there and find and become king of so in king solomon's minds which I, you know i read as a child um, no you don't. Press. i read
1: it and i mean we all read him and it's full of adventure and so on. So you don't think about the racism even mm-hmm. when even if you're an African, you just yeah. see, you know, um, great characters, sharp contrasts, evil and good and so on. So it was uh, is it a
2: kind of a Indiana Jones of kind, of that time? Kind
1: of. The idea of adventure becomes very, very important. Yeah,
3: yeah so, I mean, it, you're right. I mean, it's kind of Indiana Jones. It's man goes off and, you know, does tough things in the wilderness. But the structures, you know, as, as you know, Gigi will know now that you're older, you can look at it and see that what this was is some Englishman sets off into Africa and discovers a magical lost kingdom of basically lost European people where he, you know, fights a battle, marries the queen, and then ends up... Uh, as king of this kind of mythical lost kingdom in Africa. Mm. And the, the repeated nature of it makes it quite clear that this is a
1: you know extraordinary racist and colonial fantasy. The portrayal you know, of uh, Africa. Okay, I but he provides a certain structure of images that later actually come to impact uh, the general portrayal of Africa. For instance, in Rydahaga, the good, noble African is the one who does not question the presence of, how convenient or even more the one who who cooperates with the yep. mm-hmm. uh european adventurers in showing them where the hidden treasures are right yeah and that's the colonial yeah, that, yeah. line through and through the, the, yeah the very bad african the evil the one you don't want to associate with for whom we have no empathy are the ones who are trying to prevent europeans from getting the treasure.
2: <laughs> and to bring this back to Shakespeare and, and what you were just saying, uh, uh, Edward and and Gugge, is that he was fantasizing about an England before, uh, really an England that never existed. It's like a nostalgia of a fantasy of a kind of Shakespearean England before industrialization.
3: Yeah, so I think you know this is one of the things that uh, Victorian fantasies about Africa, colonial fantasies about Africa is performing for that society is their suggesting that there's a place where they can get back before industrialization and cities and mass proletariat, where they can kind of live uh, an Elizabethan, Shakespearean, merry England life. And of course, to a certain extent, the, the white settlers who ended up in Kenya. And that was what they were trying to do. They were trying to recreate a kind of English country house life halfway across the world. So Ryder Haggard's novels are, to a certain extent, tapping into that.
2: And it seems that Shakespeare also provides some seeds for that for yeah. that colonial fantasy.
1: More, I think more like we produce Shakespeare. You have no Shakespeare, right? So that's really <laughs> the, the equation. Because it has nothing to do with what Shakespeare says about anything. It's more this. He is perfect, writer. He is the... This is a great writer, this is an unparalleled writer, you know, Uh, you have not produced a, a Shakespeare. That approach, I think, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, in addition to the to these adventure stories, you also, and explorers, you also had missionaries going to Africa. And you tell a story about this very different type of Englishman who who comes to Africa and uses Shakespeare for entirely different uh, purposes. And this is Edward Steer. So who, who is
3: he? So Edward Steer uh, is the third uh, missionary bishop to Central Africa from the university's mission to Central Africa. So David Livingston comes back in the 1850s and... Um, speaks at universities in Britain about uh, the slave trade in Eastern Africa and uh, charitable societies get together and and send a bishop out to East Africa to try and convert the natives to Christianity. And Edward Steer is the third person to be sent out and I think he's slightly uncomfortable in the role in that he gets out there and instead of actually spending much time on conversion, uh, Steer spends the entire time with his printing press that he's brought out with him Translating things from English into Swahili and from Swahili into English. And one of the earliest things that he translates is um, a little school book called Hadithi Za uh, which is a selection of stories from Charles and Mary Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. And it went on to become an incredibly Popular school textbook in, in East Africa.
2: I have to say, ironically, both you and Gugu. It seems, despite your differences in age and race and and upbringing, I understand you both came to Shakespeare the same way, and that was through this this uh, Charles and Mary Lamb book that oh, yeah, Edward that was part of had the, translated. You know, that
1: was part of the general reading. Uh, a, so, a
2: foundation yeah, book.
1: Yeah, a foundation book. You know.
2: And yeah. Edward, you you also. That was a foundation text for you as well.
3: Yeah, no, I I was no um, you know Rossetti esque child sitting around reading Dante in Italian when I was four or anything. But I certainly remember being read you know Charles and Mary Lamb's tales from Shakespeare at a very early yeah. age. Mm-hmm. But, and this uh, is at was...
2: where in boarding school in in England in Europe?
3: No, no, this was sorry. This was at school in Kenya. Um, so so at an early age, so probably six or seven years old um, in, in Nairobi, where I was at school at that time.
1: Generally, the syllabus in the school system was broadly based on what would have obtained in London, so I'm not surprised that I, I've been to Hong Kong for instance and Malaysia. Same, and, same, and when syllabus, talk, right? And when yeah. we talk, you know, we, stop, we talk and then we we are talking about the same thing. <laughs> right. We're talking it's about, about the same
2: text. You all text. went
1: to school together. Yeah, we're just We're talking about yeah. Shakespeare and particular plays of Shakespeare and so on. Yeah, uh, it was all pervasive everywhere in the empire. Just to illustrate how all pervasive Shakespeare was as a talisman, really, more than anything else, was I went to a school called Alliance High School in Kenya. but I remember in my years there, between 1955 to 1959, my four years there, was Shakespeare every year the end of the year, you know, so of there'll be a major production of Shakespeare. Not to talk about a Shakespearean text being part of the courses from first year, second year, third year, fourth year. So one came to think of, well, it's as if there was no other playwright in the world. Let me put that <laughs> Shakespeare, right? So he was all pervasive, uh, his presence was enormous, and even then, there's this persistent thread that he is—he's an example of light at its highest clarity—and the that notion that we or our civilization was able to produce Shakespeare. The implication being all the time, where is you, or rather, you never produced Shakespeare, just in the same way as the idea of inventing the wheel was used. Yeah. You never invent the wheel. <laughs> so in the same breath, you never had a Shakespeare. So some of these have contradictory, of course, you know, um, impact. For instance, it was actually through Shakespeare that gradually some students at Alliance High School start writing their own plays in Kiswahili to perform in um, African townships and so on. And I remember some of the plays that we did at the time, written by the students. We had this, <laughs> had a Shakespearean structure to them and so on. They are inspired, actually, by Shakespeare. But nevertheless, they were writing these plays in an African language.
2: But then a transition happened, right? You had you had this inclusion of Shakespeare. It continued from the the colonial era and and colonial schooling as you're describing it to to the early days of the African independence movement, which you you were there for and and in fact there was almost a conscious effort to include Shakespeare in in so many ways in your schooling and then it started to change. So how, how did this transition go
1: down? It doesn't really Shakespeare is still very revered, I uh, really. And um But I, the Shakespeare
2: uh, that you were taught de emphasized. Oh fact, yeah, no, no, tapped,
1: no, he's not he's, tapped down the revolutionary he's not, he's spirit not, of He's the not, of the not a thinker. You uh-huh. know he's a genius of that civilization kind of thing, <laughs> you know. idol, uh, an idol. Uh,
3: an icon, uh, you know kind yeah. of
1: mindless genius if you like. He's not really Shakespeare as um someone who is talking about society that untouchable ideal uh, that has no real relationship with the blood and tears. and Although he talks about all that in the text, that was divorced from what was going on, say, in a colony. But what happens, though, after independence, is that for some of us, me, well, try to change the way literature is taught, and we try to, to center it, with Africa as a center.
2: As opposed to a right Yeah, 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 right.
1: And even we brought Shakespeare in, but not as a central focus of everything, you know. Well, uh,
2: there is also uh, the chapter, though, that we haven't talked about, or we've just begun to talk about mm-hmm. this pushback against Shakespeare uh, from from the 1960s to, to later in the 20th mm-hmm. century. Uh, and Gui, I know you were part of that. Mm. More I think
1: more like it was actually things don't always work the way they were intended. <laughs> right. Is <laughs> when you try to change the syllabus at the University of Nairobi in nineteen sixty nine or thereabout, I remember how we were denounced in Kenyan parliament by ministers and attorney general and so on. And one of the biggest accusations I remember was the fact that that we were trying to kill Shakespeare.
2: <laughs> That's,
1: that was its like an argument. If you say that, look what they're trying to do. They are trying to remove Shakespeare from syllabus, And we were not, I have to emphasize this, we were just rejecting the whole organization of literature in right, Africa. Right, it wasn't a ban. Yeah, it wasn't a ban on Shakespeare. So saying, look, if you're in Africa, you have to begin from where you are. And then expand outwards, not bring English literature as in the center of your life and history and everything. I like to think of it as liberating Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. <laughs> By liberating Shakespeare, from his colonial actually. Prison. Yeah, 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 from kind of English prison. Uh, it's, it's a very Shakespearean plot in some ways. Mm-hmm. People thought you were killing him, but you were really just breaking <laughs> him out of prison. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly, <right>. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Freeing him, freeing free. <laughs> him.
2: And this idea of appropriating Shakespeare for one's own culture uh, is something that you get into, uh, Edward, in the chapters in which you discuss Julius Nairere's uh, ch- translation of Julius Caesar and the Merchant of Venice in Tanzania. There was also S.S. Uh, S. Mushi's translation of of Macbeth in Tanzania. And there was Thomas Decker's Julius Caesar in Sierra Leone. And, and Edward, you talk in the book about the national poet of Ethiopia translating Othello, Macbeth, and Hamlet into Amharic. Now, Edward, you see these translations as yet another side of, of this story where Shakespeare in Africa is not about Britain. In fact, it, it's divorced from Britain.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the Ethiopian translations and some of the Indian performances in the early 20th century is that th- this stops it just being a two-way conversation between Britain and the world. You know, Shakespeare is here not being seen as a totem of Britishness. When Tsegaya Gibrabedin is translating Shakespeare into Amharic in Ethiopia in the 1960s. He's doing it because he finds a particular kismet between Shakespeare's own treatment of court intrigue and uh, and autocracy in, in the history plays and the tragedies, and what he's seeing going on in Ethiopia around Haile Selassie. And so this is uh, someone engaging with Shakespeare. Obviously, uh, Ethiopia has an immense symbolic potential for the Pan-Africanist movement at that time, because Ethiopia represents this long and proud tradition of uncolonized African culture with a long written history and everything. So in part, Haile Selassie's patronage of the poet who is translating these things is to do with showing Ethiopian culture and showing Amharic to be on the level of other great world cultures. Actually, the way in which uh, Tsagaya Gebremedin is translating it is quite a subversive way. And and that turns it into much more internal conversation and something that, uh, you know, I think he's translating Shakespeare not as some kind of totem or, or idol, but as someone who, who he's finding great, great affinities with as a writer. You know, where the story of Shakespeare in, in East Africa, it, some of its most interesting parts are where it becomes detached from being used as a kind of British idol or being rejected as a British idol. You know, for instance, a lot of the Ethiopian Shakespeare influence comes from Russian cinema. And similarly, when I went to South Sudan, towards the end of this project to meet Joseph Abouk, who had translated uh, Cymbeline into Juba Arabic for the Globe to Globe Festival in in 2012, he had grown up on Shakespeare, uh, but he'd grown up reading Shakespeare in Arabic through the translations of the Egyptian Renaissance in the early 20th century. So I think there are lots of these stories where actually the conversations are, you know, Shakespeare has long since ceased to be a British possession and something that the British simply get to uh, nominate as their own and to use as a symbol of themselves and has has become alive again in circles far separated from them.
2: And this this gets to really, I think, the central, I I guess what we constantly talking about it. And it's a cliche by now, the the universality of Shakespeare. And from what both of you are saying, in Africa's case, it might be more... To the point to think about it in terms not of universality, but that Shakespeare's it's literally ubiquitous. It's 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 in the it's your foundation text. It's the works are simply available and accessible in the most literal sense. It's unavoidable in culture, and that that's kind of looking at it that way. It's a bit of a reality check.
1: Yeah. By the way, let me tell you, I'm this semester. I'm teaching a course on the whole theme of the colonizer and colonized. At mm-hmm. my first class on Thursday, guess what text I shall be using? The Tempest. So, I shall yeah. be talking about Prosper and Caliban as symbols of that, you know, well, Zanzibar <laughs> I have to bring Zanzibar, of
0: course, you know,
1: and I'll mention, I'll mention in your book also, I'll use well, That's thing. very cool.
2: <laughs> Edward, would you like to pick up on that idea of the cliché question, the universality of Shakespeare?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think um, one of the things that I spent a lot of time thinking about when writing this book was this notion of universality. And I think a lot of these different people taking Shakespeare to Africa are kind of testing his universality. So the colonial travellers are saying that Shakespeare is universal, but therefore anyone who doesn't get him isn't included with the universally human and, and is inhuman. Whereas the missionaries who translate him uh, have, uh, you know, idea in a creator God who created everyone and therefore everyone must have some sort sort of shared language and shared beauty that they can all appreciate and they so they all have these different versions of universality you know so i I think Shakespearean universality in in reality obviously has a lot more to do with power struggle and his the the ubiquity that has come through the the size of the the british empire Um, but i think that's you know there there are redeemable ideas of his if not universality his universal accessibility shakespeare First and foremost is a storyteller and in order to create compelling stories he doesn't flatten his characters. He gives them motives and depth and and so on and so forth. So I think the fact that People, even after the trauma of having this text imposed upon them by colonialisation, can come back to it in, in a different guise at a different time and see something else in it. It speaks to Shakespeare's, if not universality, at least his extraordinary, almost unparalleled openness to being appropriated and to being uh, read in different ways and to appealing to different people.
1: Yeah. No, he is a great writer, and you really put it this way. As a writer, I've got to appreciate him even more. When I see his range of characters, from the highest social grouping to the socially low in terms of structures of those societies and so on, the way he look at how power actually operates in society, he tackles things like racism in the case of Othello. He can sort of, it not be said better, you know, Merchant of Venice in anti-Semitism and, you know, sort of, you know, he has really packed a lot of things in his text. And the struggle of of Shakespeare, quite frankly, was the colonial Shakespeare tried to ensure that the content of his play had no relevance. So the struggle really was, let's have Shakespeare, but must be this sanitized Shakespeare. Not a Shakespeare who talks about Macbeth. Uh, assassinating Banco in his bedroom, as I guess. If this happened today, oh my God, you know, that'd be something else. But it's there in Shakespeare. So it's a question really appropriating that essential Shakespeare. And I think what appeals to so many people in Shakespeare was that Shakespeare is able to look at society and capture all the contradictions that move society but to try to make him this great writer there's no other writer like shakespeare it's a fantasy well yeah. it's a fantasy that no one who ever <laughs> yeah, read shakespeare
3: right. could possibly uh, yeah. you know p- could mm-hmm. possibly have because of, of course mm-hmm. that kind of idol in shakespeare always turns mm-hmm. out to be mm-hmm. you know the tyrant uh, the person set apart you know richard iii tries Mm. to pretend to be this Mm. kind of pious idol and turns out to be an evil rooting hog. So Shakespeare has no sympathy for alabaster idol types
2: generally. I could talk all day with both of you about Shakespeare, and it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this.
3: Okay, thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah, thank you for for hosting. Edward
0: Wilson Lee teaches medieval and early modern literature, including Shakespeare, at Sydney Sussex College at the University of Cambridge in England. He is the author of the 2016 book Shakespeare in Swahili Land: In Search of a Global Poet, published by Farrar Strauss Giroux. Kenyan novelist and playwright Gugi Wathiang is a distinguished professor of English and comparative literature at the University of California, Irvine. His most recent work is a memoir, Birth of a Dreamweaver, A Writer's Awakening, which was published by the New Press in 2016. Googie and Edward were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. The language that I have lived in was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Barbara Caldwell at the University of California, Irvine, Evan Marquardt at Voicetracks Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Roger Chatterton at Kite Recording Studio in Cambridge, England. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help, thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website Folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.